It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So this one is called Rooted for Red October. And uh, there was a movie, I haven't seen it in years, but it was called Hunt for Red October. And so I figured I would play a little off that, even though, uh, and it's interesting because Red October is, 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 has a deep meaning. Uh, and some of you are already familiar with the February Revolution from our last message, but then there's going to be something called the October Revolution, and that is Red October. And that is when the communist regime is going to move into Russia and the communist is symbolic of the red color. And so Red October is the month of shift in world history. I mean, we have dealt with what took place because of Red October even in our lifetime, and still to this day we are feeling the impact of it. And it's not just Russia that felt it. China is then going to feel it. There is going to be uh, you know, communist regimes all over the world that are going to actually grow out of this, and it's going to start in the year 1917, right where we're at. So as we visit Russia, uh, and I've shown this picture a couple times, and I'm going to do a, a review of a message way back. It was called the Nicholas Swizzle, and uh, this is Tsar Nicholas II, the king of Russia, and it's just sort of interesting because in our ears, the idea of a king of Russia just sounds odd. And yet, that's the time period. The time period when World War I starts, we have kings, we have Caesars, they're called czars or kaisers, but we still have this age of kings. And they have power. It's not like in Great Britain where there's a king, uh, but he doesn't really have power anymore. This is actually powerful kings that are making decisions for nations, and all of that is going to switch by the end of World War I. It's interesting just to see the meltdown of all uh, these kingdoms. And so Nicholas, I actually like the guy. And you know, some of these characters that we've dealt with are sort of like, you know what, I, fascinating to learn about, not very likable character. I like this guy and I feel for him. I actually, my heart goes out to him and I wish I could help him. Uh, and it's a little late uh, for that. But uh, there's a lot of factors in this man's life which are very intriguing to me. And it's sort of a sad, tragic uh, sort of story. But uh, he's a likable character. So we're going, there's our map from Europe in 1914. And uh, there's Petrograd. It was actually St. Petersburg. And this is where uh, the home base of uh, the Tsardom is in Russia. And uh, if you remember, that's exactly where Lenin is going to be taken in that boxcar on April, uh, what was it, April 16th he arrived, April 14th, I don't remember, something like that. And uh, so this is called the Tsarina. Uh, so she is the wife of the Tsar, her name is Alexandra, and she's the Empress of Russia. And they actually had a love story. In other words, in a lot of these uh, royal marriages, there's they're sort of forced to get married, and it's for ally uh, relationships, and th that was still in, in, a, in, in that time period, and yet these two actually love each other, and Alexander III, uh, who is his dad, did not approve of this marriage, and then he eventually came around on his deathbed. One of his last words you know, was a blessing upon them, and so 
we have the Empress. She actually plays into the storyline, as you will see. And then Alexei uh, Nikolaevich, uh, he's the Tsarevich, which means he's the uh, heir apparent. He is the one that when Nicholas uh, passes away, this is the one who will become king. And he is actually a critical character in the story as well. I'm not going to go into this side of the story as much as much as I'm bringing it back from the Nicholas Swizzle. But uh, one of the challenges that Alexei has is he's a hemophiliac. He doesn't have the ability to clot his blood, so just a bruise or a slight cut, he can bleed to death. And so the entire kingdom of Russia hinges on the health of this little boy. And the Tsarina uh, is <clears throat> a high-stress person. So she is very stressed out about her son and everything he does. So he's basically on lockdown, sort of life in a bubble, can't do anything so that he can survive because, I mean, the nation hinges on this. So there's the family. They're called the Romanovs, and uh, that's the family. And you can see Alexei uh, down there. But it's just sort of a, I don't know, it's a haunting picture to me uh, because of what's going to happen in Russia when I see this. But all of the, this, this family is going to be the center of a very, very significant uh, dynamic that is going to unfold because of World War I. So we have another character, and his name is Grigory Rasputin. And uh, you could say, how did that guy get mixed into this very nice, pleasant-looking family? And we have a guy who's known as the Mad Monk. Uh, and you see, this guy is, he, he would call himself sort of like a, uh, a priest or a spiritist. He's he has this capacity to somehow bring health to Alexei, and he is one weird character, okay? And, but when he's around, Alexei seems to be healthy, but this guy has every other problem in the book. The way he looks is the way he acts, okay? So the fact that, but as a result, because of the health of Alexei and the Tsarina's dependence upon you know, because of her stress, her need to have this little boy healthy, she wants this guy basically living with them. And so this guy is going to grow in power in the country of Russia. Remember, Russia is a kingdom ruled by a king, basically. And so one man has total control over the largest piece of territory on earth. And guess who's controlling him? This guy. Okay, so the fact that Grigory Rasputin is actually, in a strange way, controlling and manipulating the most powerful nation on earth is a fascinating subplot in World War I. So the uncertain dictator, Nicholas II. So this is when he was first uh, brought into, his, you know, his father passes away, and this is spoken in confidence to an advisor in 1894. Remember, we're in... Uh, 1917 now, so this is obviously a while before, but he was 26 years old, and he says this, what is going to happen to me, to all Russia? I'm not prepared to be czar. I never even wanted to become one. That quote is so telling in his entire life. He is given a responsibility he doesn't even want, and his dad was such a competent man and ruled with an iron fist and this guy is suddenly going to come into the Tsardom because his dad passes away sort of in an untimely fashion. 
And now suddenly the weight of the world, and that's not much of an exaggeration, Russia is a very large territory, is going to land on his shoulders, and guess what? His father didn't prepare him for it. Now, most of us would say, oh, you know, yeah, you, know, you sort of shadow your father, you hang out in key meetings with your father, meet all the, the, the key characters around the world so that when you take over, you know what you're doing. No, he has no idea. He has no idea what he's doing. So you, you could just imagine having this much weight fall on your shoulders where suddenly an entire nation is looking to you saying, what are we supposed to do? And you're like, I don't know. And yet you need to know. And so that, that's why my heart goes out to this guy. I mean, at, at a certain level, I'm just thinking, what? The poor guy. I mean, what a unique situation. He's newly married and he's in love, but the weight upon them sort of makes it hard to have that cheery, you know, frolic through the meadow sort of love. This is like the weight of the world is crushing him. Following in the footsteps of competence. So Alexander III. So look at this guy. This is uh, Nicholas's impressive father. He's a huge man. And uh, so he's just a massive guy. He could like take a deck of cards and rip it in half. And so Nicholas is just a normal, you know, sort of short guy, and there's nothing impressive about him, and yet he is supposed to sort of follow in this guy's footsteps. This guy was built to be a czar, and he was likely trained to be a czar, whereas somehow Alexander III didn't pass along the vision to his son. Either that or he intended to pass it along, but, you know, got busy, and then didn't, and then he died. And so suddenly we have a problem. So this is uh, written about Alexander III. The eldest son of Emperor Alexander III, Nicholas, was his father's designated heir. Alexander did not adequately prepare his son to rule a Russia that was racked with political turmoil. A strict autocrat, Alexander believed that a czar had to rule with an iron fist. So uh, speaking of Alexander, he forbade anyone within the Russian Empire to speak non-Russian languages, even those in places like Poland cracked down on the freedom of the press and weakened his people's political institutions. So his entire goal was total control. So Nicholas is going to take over a system where the people in that system are already frustrated because they've been controlled so thoroughly. So Nicholas needs to figure out what sort of leader he's going to be. He can't be soft because his dad had everything in control. So he's going to do his best to be the strong leader but if you're not a really strong leader, it's hard to be a strong leader. And that's definitely going to show through in Nicholas's life. The quest for competence, the leadership foibles of the last Russian czar. So again, my, my heart goes out to this poor guy, but he has one guy who's sort of counseling him that would be considered like an equal. And that's a guy named <clears throat> William II from Germany. I don't know if you guys remember uh, Wilhelm uh, II, and he's a meddler, and he thinks he knows all, and he's meddling with Nicholas II, and that's what the Nicholas Swizzle is all about. And he is going to actually get Nicholas into the Russian-Japanese war, which is going to totally destroy his credibility. It's going to actually undermine the competence level and the perceived competence level and strength of Russia, because Russia is going to take on a much smaller power uh, Japan, and here they are, Russia, and they're going to not just lose, but be humiliated. And so the most powerful nation on earth suddenly doesn't look too impressive. And guess who's leading that 
all-powerful nation on earth, but Nicholas. And so it's all thanks to the meddler, William, who is, you know, so at this time there's going to be a break between William and Nicholas, which is where you see in World War I, Russia is actually against Germany as opposed to with Germany. And so you're going to see that William's meddling gets him in trouble. It really does in the long run, right? But he really did accomplish what he wanted, which was to undermine Russia. Russia is sort of falling apart, and that was a <clears throat> sort of the end game of William in the first place. So the strange addition to the story, when Grigory Rasputin shows up, it adds this whole new dimension because we already have somewhat of an unstable system with Nicholas running Russia, you know, and all the fact that he doesn't really know how to run a nation. And so the nation isn't very healthy, just to be honest with you. They are falling to pieces. Their economy is bad. Everything about Russia, they have all the resource, but they don't know how to coordinate their limbs to make it work. And so you add this guy into the story, the, the Siberian peasant, the strange match for an uncertain world leader. Look at this picture. <laughs> this is a real character in history, guys. This, it's sort of hard to describe Grigory Rasputin. And what's funny is if you try and look him up and study him, it's not an edifying study, okay? I'm just going to tell you that. I, I wouldn't even encourage it. There's a lot of darkness that surrounds this man. He was an evil man in every regard. And yet he finds himself in a position of control because the Tsar and the Tsarina are dependent upon him because of their son, Alexei. And he seems to have an elixir for Alexei. It sounded like a purposeful statement, but it wasn't. Uh, whereas all the medical uh, experts in Russia at the time had no solution for Alexei. And this guy does. Imagine how frustrated the medical professionals were in, in Russia. It's like, this guy's a quack. And yet they're like, yeah, but his solutions work. Yours don't. And so what a, what a unique uh, storyline here. So basically, Russia is starting to turn on Nicholas. Why? Because of Rasputin. It's like, how can, we have, how can you have any competence as a leader when you have this guy living in your palace with you, giving you uh, advice on how to lead our nation. You have to get rid of Rasputin. And yet he can't get rid of Rasputin. He doesn't even like Rasputin. That's what's funny. Nicholas II doesn't like Rasputin. It's his wife that does not want Rasputin to go because she feels like it's her insurance policy. She can rest at night when he is there. Because if Alexei were to ever have anything happen, at least we have Rasputin there. I don't know if you can examine your soul and ever see anything like that in your soul where you tag along and allow something in as some form of weird insurance policy. And that insurance policy is going to actually lead to the demise of an entire nation. It's really interesting. Grigory Rasputin is one of the key factors that is going to lead to the destruction of a nation. And so Nicholas II, you can see his mind here, better 10 Rasputins than one of the empress's hysterical fits. So he is going to appease his wife, appease his wife, appease his wife, even though it's basically going to destroy the nation. So here's Alexander Kerensky. So he is the one, I'm, I'm skipping ahead a little, but the, the, the czar, uh, Nicholas II, is going to end up ab, abdict, abdicating his throne and giving up his throne. And there's going to be an in-between government, and I've already forewarned you that, Nick, uh, that Lenin is showing up in town, okay? 
And so, but in that in-between period, Kerensky is going to be the one who's over the government. And when he is going to lose his power, thanks to the October Revolution, which is what I'm just about to get to, this is a quote that he said, without Rasputin, there would have been no Lenin. In other words, what he's saying is the vulnerability that came about to, that would make you know, uh, Russia ready for a Lenin was the instability brought on by the Tsar allowing in Rasputin. The unfurling of two revolutions. It's very rare in one nation that you would have two major events like this in one year. In fact, there are so many major events in Russia in the year 1917. So in 1915, in the middle of World War I, Nicholas is going to you know, do his kingly duty, and he feels he has to be more apart because there's turmoil in Russia right from the beginning of this war. First of all, they just were embarrassed in the Russo-Japanese War not that long before, and now they're being embarrassed against the Germans in fighting in the fronts of World War I. So Nicholas is going to go to the front, and he is going to help lead I don't know if it was helpful, by the way. Uh, and, but he's going to leave St. Petersburg for the Russian army front. So between 1915 and 1916, that is going to leave the Tsarina in charge. And guess who's in charge of the Tsarina? Rasputin. So she is going to basically come to Rasputin for all of her decisions. And there's a whole bunch of people in the government that Rasputin doesn't like. So he's going to tell her that they need to go. And so you could just imagine how well this was transferring to the people of uh, Russia who knew that Nicholas wasn't there, and they knew, everyone knew, that it was Rasputin controlling things. And so as a result, there's going to be a plot to kill Rasputin. It's, it's quite the story, guys. Uh, and Rasputin, I mean, it's quite the legendary story where he gets shot and then comes back to life and then is trying to strangle someone. I mean, it's like the weirdest story you've ever heard. And I, I have a hunch that there's a whole bunch of Russian you know, stuff mixed into it that just has enlarged it over the years. But it is one of those stories where you just want to say, okay, well, that happened. At least he's, he's dead now, right? Yes, he eventually died. Uh, and I mean, the story is so weird. And everything about this whole thing is just like, ooh. Uh, so it's like, okay. However, that's going to be at the end of, of 1916. So we enter into 1917 with an extremely unstable situation because the credibility of Nicholas II and the Tsarina are in the toilet, okay, at about this point. They don't have their counselor, Rasputin. Everything is unstable for them. You can just imagine how well the Tsarina was doing now that uh, the Rasputin was murdered. Okay, So you feel this instability there, and that's going to lead to what we call the, Re the February Revolution on March 8th, 1917. I made it green for you on the screen, just you know, so you could see it uh, up there. But that's a massive event in history because it is literally going to be the overturning of a 300-year monarchy. The Romanovs have ruled for 300 years. That is a long portion of history. And in a matter of just the shortest time, everything is going to fall to pieces. And Nicholas, who didn't really want the job anyways, is going to step down surprisingly quickly. It's just like, look, I don't want this throne. And which sounds really good. And everyone in Russia is like, yeah. 
and they're taking over with a new government, but they don't know what government to have. I mean, what, what form of government should we have? We just know we don't like that form. And so this is going to make them extremely vulnerable, but they're getting out what I would call a very bad form of government. And so I, I could even cheer along uh, with everyone and say, you know what, it probably is good that we get Nicholas out. I have a heart for Nicholas, but he wasn't a good leader, okay? And the nation, I mean, there's people starving in Russia. We, we don't have a good system of government. We don't know how to supply resource to all of our limbs in this country. We need to get healthy again. And so I'm in agreement with the people. Nicholas is not a good fit, and I'm really upset that Grigory Rasputin is helping lead our country. I don't like it, okay? So if I'm a Russian, I'm going to be cheering as well. So the Kerensky government comes in at this time, and this is one of the things that I want to focus on in this message. And it's actually a weighty thing in my soul because there's going to be a period of eight months between when the new government is going to start and when the October Revolution is going to hit, when Lenin is going to make his move. And in that time, this, this searching for a new government is going to take place. And one of the governments they were actually talking to and trying to see if the model could work is America. Russia was actually working with America to see if they could adopt a constitutional republic. I mean, it's, it's actually very haunting to my soul to realize that Russia could have gone in such a different direction than they did. And, but remember, the Germans have their plots, and they, in a sealed boxcar, are going to send Lenin uh, into St. Petersburg, or Petrograd at the time, and unleash him. Unleash not chemical warfare, but ideological warfare on this nation. And uh, Russia is not prepared to stand against it. So on March 14th, 1917, Nicholas II abdicates his throne. And then uh, March 14th, 1970, the Kerensky government takes control of Russia. And April 16th, 1917, Vladimir Lenin arrives in Petrograd via train in a sealed boxcar. And then you're going to see in that time period, November 6th, 1917, between March 14th and November 6th, you have basically eight months and you're going to have another revolution. I, I did, you know, color it red, you know, just so you guys could see that on the screen. And then December 1917, uh, after this revolution, which is going to overturn the Kerensky government, it's like a coup. And every, you know, civil location is going to be overtaken by the Bolsheviks. It's the communists that are coming in under Lenin, and it's called the Soviet Union, and is going to form in this time, but it's, it's, it's going to form in process because there's going to be a Russian civil war that's going to start in the next month, in December of 1917. It's going to end in 1923. There's a lot of bloodshed that is going to take place. This has nothing to do with World War I. This is internal. This is an internal civil war. And then July 16, 1918, that family... The Romanovs, Nicholas II, the Tsarina, Alexei, they're all going to be executed by the communists. Lest anyone in this country think that we're going to return to that form of government. And even that story is very haunting to me. It's very sad. You know, there's part of me that just grieves, even though it happened so long ago. I like these guys, and I feel like their ignorance was played upon them. Like, even their vulnerability to something like Rasputin, it's like, I want to step in because they actually wanted to serve God. That's what's interesting. It's like they probably would have called themselves Christians, and yet they were not strong 
Christians. They weren't rooted in the Word of God, and so as a result, they fell for everything. And my heart breaks for that, and that's part of what this message is actually about. It's about that transition of removing an old form of government and being like, yes, we're free, but then only setting yourself up for a worse form of government because you were not rooted in the kingdom government. So the eight months in between, the formation of the new government, in each of our lives we have this, this phenomenon where we're transitioning from an old, and I should put it over here because that's where I always put the old, to a new. And that transition is very significant. And there are many that, though they start out strong, end up being, having their new life choked out. Sometimes it's by the cares of this world. Sometimes it's because of a rocky soil. There's various things that can snuff out this new beginning. And yet God's design is actually that this new beginning would carry forth into a full, vibrant life. And so since I'm con convinced God is interested in bringing us into that full, vibrant life, I want to focus on that transition very specifically. So I'm calling it the principle of transitionary vulnerability. I know, huge name. It sounds almost like a theological uh, statement there, doesn't it? Transitionary vulnerability. When you're transitioning from an old to a new system of life, this transitionary period has vulnerability to it. And it seems to be innately there, and the enemy knows it. The enemy knows that that tree that has been uprooted here, and then it's going to be replanted here, in that transitionary period, when that, roots, when that, new, that root system is exposed, it is vulnerable, extra vulnerable. And then when it's first planted, it is vulnerable, extra vulnerable. A wind could come up, a gust of wind, and it could easily topple it. So oftentimes you will stake it, you will wrap it, there's all sorts of very, various things that this tree, this new sapling, is vulnerable to that you must be aware of if you are an arborist or a tree grower, that you are someone who understands the vulnerability of the new and the beginning of something. So from enslavement to liberty, the devil observes the process closely. So in this process of new beginnings, when you're taking first steps, the devil has a tendency to accompany those first steps. Now, that could sound intimidating. It'd be like, well, I don't want to take a step then. Well, that's exactly what he wants. He wants you to be intimidated. He wants you to feel him breathing down the back of your neck. It's like, you step in this direction, and I've got you. It's all a bluff, and it's all a lie. He actually has no control over your new steps if you are holding on in faith to Jesus Christ. Jesus is greater than the one who is breathing down your neck. And yet the devil is going to accompany this process to try and subvert this new development and this forming of, uh, of your foundation. Exodus 3.17 is going to talk about one of these transitionary processes where there's vulnerability. God is speaking to Israel, and I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. So God has promised to take them out of Egypt into a land flowing with milk and honey. And yet in that process, you're going to notice that there's going to be a lot of friction. There's a lot of friction from being freed from Egypt 
to being established in the land of promise. And this is the zone in which we live, and the enemy is set on taking us down. You know, the Amalekites are a great picture of what we could call the first. So just like I've said, there's always a first and a second. And so, you know, Cain, Abel, Ishmael, Isaac, Esau, Jacob. And it's the first that doesn't please God. It's the second one that seems to esteem the things of God, and it does please God. The Amalekites are a descendant of Esau. They're a descendant of the first. And when Israel makes its way out of Egypt, guess who's waiting for them in the wilderness? The Amalekites. It's the first. Just like your flesh is one of the first things that is awaiting to contradict and to counteract your first movements forward towards this land of promise. Numbers 32, 11, Because they have not followed me wholeheartedly, not one of those who were 20 years old or more when they came out of Egypt will see the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Again, it's a tragedy in Scripture. And we could feel for this just like we could feel for Nicholas II. In other words, this isn't the way it was supposed to be. And yet, in that transition, they were taken out big time. The Israelites flopped in the wilderness. They did not take that transitionary period and use it in a strong way. They didn't use it in faith. Instead, they used it in fear. And they feared these giants and these walled cities that reached up to the heavens. And they didn't fear their God and know that their God was greater than any walled city or any giant. And as a result, they died in the wilderness. And that is precisely what we don't want to do. And so these lessons of history actually have great impact on us if we take heed to them. Hebrews 3, 14 through 19 talks of this exact thing. We have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Not with whom he, was he angry? Now, with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that he, they would not enter into his rest? but to those who did not obey. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. I'm going to go back to a statement in the beginning of that. It says, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So there seems to be the same thing. It's like spiritual lessons from you know, the Exodus. Uh, and if God was given a series, this is one of the messages in it. It's like they hardened their hearts in the day of rebellion. Remember Korah? And just their attitude that they had towards Moses and towards God. It's like, hey, we want it on our terms. We don't want difficulty. Why do we have a bitter water here? Come on, give us what we want. And in every situation, there was grumbling and there was complaining. And this people were thinking about their own needs, their own wants, their own satisfaction instead of God. God has just delivered them out of slavery from Egypt, and all they can see is what is wrong instead of what is right. And whenever you turn like that and you harden your heart, you actually lose the very essence of what God is helping you move forward with, and that's faith. Do you see God? Do you see his faithfulness? Do you see that in every situation you've been in, he's always come up with a solution? Can you think of one where he hasn't delivered you? Oh, Israel, think about it. Even when you were at the Red Sea, there's no hope, but what did God do? He parted it. 
You walked across on dry land. He swallowed up your enemy. The horse and rider were thrown into the sea. And then he supplied you with clear water instead of bitter water. And so at every point, he took a tree and it was placed in that water and it turned something that was bitter into something sweet. Do you see the faithfulness of your God? Will he not prove faithful moving forward? Instead, they turned and they hardened their hearts. I don't want this. I didn't ask for this. Where are my leeks and onions? I want what I used to have. And whenever you approach your transitionary season looking back towards Egypt, it actually hinders you from moving forward into the land flown with milk and honey. You're falling for the trap. The devil is talking to you about leeks and onions. I know for some of us, we're like, uh, that isn't quite my language of what would sound good. Isn't that funny? Leeks and onions. And ironically, what we're supposed to go for is a, a land flown with milk and honey, which also sounds rather strange too. Some of you are like, I don't even drink milk. I'm lactose intolerant. Uh, and yet, that's a good thing. Leeks and onions, I guess, are maybe an attractive thing in a worldly sense. I'm not, not sure. I've never been attracted to leeks or onions, right? So that one's not attractive to me either. And yet, if we understand what is happening, we see that the enemy is trying to pull back, and he's trying to bait our gaze as humans away from the clear calling that we have. In this transitionary stage, it's a clear defining territory for our soul and our development. Matthew 12. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I'll return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. To be set free, but then to not fill the house with what it was intended to be filled with, the life of Jesus, the fullness of Jesus, the dependency on Jesus, the lordship of Jesus, and just to say, this is my house, I want to do with it what I want, what you see is Russia in a nutshell right there. They are freed from a bad form of government. I'm not going to argue that Nicholas was not a good leader, that he was not leading in a good way, that Russia was unhealthy at that time. Grigory Rasputin should have no say in what is going on in Russia. Okay, I'm in agreement with the people of Russia. However, to remove him and to not stick in something that would truly bring life to this country is going to make them extremely vulnerable. So when Lenin shows up, they fall like a house of cards. And they are completely under his control. The most powerful nation on earth with the most people on earth is going to fall under the overwhelming onrush of just a handful of radicals. I mean, it's truly remarkable what is going to happen in that country. The importance of the in-between. Remembering when Israel did it right. So, in the Bible, we don't just have a story of Israel doing it wrong, which is very easy to come across, right? It's very easy to find stories of doing it wrong. And however, there are stories of Israel doing it right. And that's a rare find. And so let's visit it. Genesis 32.6. So this is going to be a surprising version of Israel, but this is where the name Israel comes from. Now, at Ellerslie, we like to bring up this story quite a bit because it's sort of a defining moment in the history of the nation of Israel. Because even the name Israel is coming out of this one story, which is not to be overlooked. Because when God names Jacob Israel in this story, 
He is naming a behavior. He is saying, circle that, that is Israel. You see, Israel isn't just a person throughout the Bible. It's not just an ethnicity. It is the people of faith. That's actually what Israel is. It's those that are in Christ, ultimately, is how it's going to be defined. And so what you see in this is you could circle it and say that right there. That's how you go through your transitionary period right. Right here. Jacob is going through a transitionary period. He has exited Laban's household. Now, most of you, if you study the story of Laban, you're going to say, yeah, he should get out of there. That's an unhealthy situation. Laban is... Laban is just as much of a con man as Jacob is, right? And Jacob is being called, you know where? To a land flown with milk and honey. He's being called to the land of Canaan. The same way we are. We're being called to a land flown with milk and honey. We have our Nicholas II regime, the old man, the system that does not work, even if you meant well and you were you know, a good character and you had a genuine love story, all these things that we could say about Nicholas II. It's a bad government. It doesn't work. And it needs to be overthrown at a certain level, right? Well, the same is true with our old man, our old life. And so we need to put that off. And we need to exit that so that we can enter into a land flown with milk and honey. We can enter into the God-ruled territory where Christ is at the helm. And so when you put off that first life, it's sort of like this, this journey. A A Jacob is known as Jacob because... He grabbed the heel of Esau when they were being born. And Esau was born second, so he's a second. And yet he was grabbing the first. He seems to esteem what the first has. You ever notice that in all the stories? It's like the first gets the birthright. And so what does he do? He cons Esau for the birthright. You see, his name means heel grabber, but it also means supplanter. It also means deceiver. He's a con man is what he is. He grabs, he's grabbing something to see if he can get the benefit out of it, right? And so he's grabbing Esau, not just in the womb, but he's grabbing him for the birthright. And then he's also deceiving to get the blessing. He thinks that Esau has what he wants, what he needs. He esteems the right things, but he's going after it the wrong way. And so even when he's with Laban, why is he with Laban? Because Esau has threatened to kill him. And so he flees, and he's hanging out with Laban for all these years, getting you know, his wives and his, you know, his kids. Uh, and so a lot has happened in that time with Laban. However, it's an unhealthy government that he's under there, and he is going to be called by God away to the land of Canaan, to the land of his forefathers. This is where he's supposed to be. And so now we begin the transition. And so this is the transitionary period where Israel does it right. You see, he has always grabbed the heel. In this situation, guess what he hears? Esau is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. Armed men are coming. Now, what is the last thing Esau said to him? I see you again, I kill you, right? This is not good, right? And Jacob has no weapons. He has a whole bunch of cattle, women, and children. This isn't a good you know, military operation. And so, again, he's going to be Jacob, and he's going to divide his party into two camps, lest if one gets struck, the other can sneak away. He's a cunning guy. And then he's going to go off by himself, and he's going to run into God. And when he runs into God, something is going to happen in this long, dark night in Jacob's life. He's always used his faith grip to grab a hold 
of the wrong things. And now he's going to use that grip to grab a hold of God. And he's going to wrestle through the night. And this is actually what is going to give him a new name. Because even when God says, let go of me, he says no. Basically saying, if I could summarize and paraphrase, you have what I need. And I can't live without it. So I am not letting go until I get it. And here's the statement. I will not let you go unless you bless me. You see, he's been after this blessing his entire life. And now he recognizes he's been grabbing the wrong thing. He's been grabbing Esau. But the secret to dealing with Esau is to actually grab a hold of God, just like your firstborn life. Esau is a symbol of it. That's like the flesh that is waiting to taunt you and to say, you're not getting here. You're not going in this direction. You actually think you can make it in the land flown with milk and honey? Ha! 400 armed men. And Jacob doesn't have the power to go against that. Or does he? In and of himself, he doesn't. But when he grabs a hold of God, now he suddenly is going to have the secret. And he gets a new name. No longer is he the heel grabber. No longer is he the supplanter. No longer is he the deceiver. Now he's the God grabber. That's a good way of describing the definition of Israel. And so he is going to grab a hold of God and he is going to get something in his life. And this is going to set the pace for his life moving forward. So rooted for Red October. In each of our lives, we are going to go through transitionary periods. Our biggest one is when we first are coming to Christ and we're giving up a, a terrible form of government, being under the thumb of flesh and sin, and we're going to try and navigate forward. A lot of Christians bungle in this exact time period for lack of discipleship is the main reason. But they go to their own pockets to try and live for Christ. And they try and do it in their own strength. It's like, God, I'll do this for you. Many of you know exactly what this is like. You have taken steps forward with Christ, but they were very ineffective steps because you were looking to your own self as the source for how to do it. In a sense, you were grabbing Esau. Jacob had a very similar start to his life, right? It should be encouraging to us. However, there comes a point, and it's called the dark night of the soul in Christian history, where you recognize that I can't grab Esau. Esau is not the source for me. Esau doesn't have what I need. Only God does. My first man must be forsaken. I cannot dig in those pockets anymore. I must go to God. God is the one that has the source for me, the life for me, the power for me. And that is ultimately what is going to change the life of Jacob. But that is ultimately what is going to change each of our lives as well. That is the key. And so when I say rooted for Red October, which is the name for this entire message, if you're Russia and you've gotten rid of Nicholas II, I mean, it's pretty intense thinking that Lenin is showing up in St. Petersburg in a sealed boxcar. However, you know, when I say that, I have felt those moments in my life. I've felt the conspiracy from the devil to destroy me. And I could give you multiple occasions in my life where the devil tried to take me out here. He tried to set me up here. He tried to destroy me here. He's, I mean, it's, it's a conspiracy. You know, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I do believe that the enemy conspires. He has wiles, the wiles of the devil. He is a schemer. 
and he is seeking to devour. And so it is a truth that the enemy sees what is going on in our life and he plots to destroy us. Now that could intimidate you, right? Or you could get a smirk on your face and remember that greater is he that is in you than he that is in this world. And that there is nothing that you should actually fear. One of the sessions we're gonna go through this semester is about fear and how non-essential uh, it is in our life, but also how uh, unintelligent it is for a Christian secured by God to actually participate in it. That there is actually only confidence that we have. Our God is able. Our God will do it. He has brought me this far. He'll bring me onward. And so as a result, for each of us to recognize that even though we might feel a little wobbly need right about now in our grand story, being Russia, and knowing that Lenin is coming to town to try and bring about an October revolution in our life as well, to say, no, we're going to establish a government firmly rooted in Jesus Christ. It's the concept of fixing yourself to rock. You do not fear winds and rains if you're built upon rock. If you're built upon sand, you fear winds and rains. However, I want to encourage all of us in here to be rooted and to be grounded in rock, to trust the word of God. The reason that the Israelites did not enter into the land of promise was because of unbelief. What then brings you into the land of promise? Belief, faith. When you have faith in the living God, it brings you in to the territory of strength. Every single one of us is a target. However, every single one of us has the possibility and the potential to win this. But every single one of us must choose to be believers in Jesus Christ. And when we trust our God, he will prove faithful. So Hebrews 3.14, we'll finish with this. We have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. So when you're grabbing a hold of God like Jacob did, make sure you hold on until the breaking of day. Don't let go until you see him come through, until you see him establish you firmly. Some of you knowing that you're going to be leaving in the next couple of weeks, you immediately feel sort of a vulnerability. Like you feel strong here, but you're already envisioning going back and you feel sort of weak. The same God who is making you strong here will go with you. Your job is to put your trust in him. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. Father, I ask that you would root us, that you would ground us in your life and your love and in your truth, that, Lord, you would give us a solid confidence for the day in which we live, that we are not vulnerable to the winds of this world and to the philosophies of this age. But Lord Jesus, may we remember that we have been rooted to the word of God in holy covenant with our, with our King. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would give us that strength, that confidence in you, and that we would not be like the Israelites in the wilderness who died because of unbelief and were not able to enter in. But Lord Jesus, we would be like Jacob and become Israel because we saw the true source of life, and that was you. And we grabbed a hold of you and would not let go. 
And we wrestled and wrestled and wrestled until the breaking of day, until we saw the breakthrough in our life. And Lord Jesus, even though we know it comes with a limp, and we know that after that grand battle, we may recognize our own weakness at a greater level, but may we know your strength. We love you and we trust you and we put our confidence in you, Lord. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.